Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by, uh, per usual, my two co-hosts, uh, Ryan, Ryan Sweet. Ryan's the Director of Real-Time Economics, uh, and Chris Dorides. Chris is the Deputy Chief Economist. How guys? How, how are things this week? Hanging in there. Hanging in there. You always say that, Chris. You're always hanging well, in there. You know, it's uh, someday I'll... Uh, I'll be on one extreme or the other, but uh, yeah, today it's well, hanging in. Okay, zero is bad, ten is good. Where are you? Where are you this week? Uh, I'd say a nice six. A nice six. Mm. Okay, I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna ask that every week and see where he lands. <laughs> he's normally probably at a five, you know, because he's middle of the road. I know. He, right he, down the he middle. wanted to say five, but yeah, he did. He knew we were gonna rib him if he said five, so he said six. Mm-hmm. Is that am I, wow. am I reading you right, Chris? Am I Man, reading? Man, I right? come on here for the therapy. I, I know it's... <laughs> right, and of course the, the the fellow who's chuckling over there is our other colleague, Scott Scott Hoyt. Scott, good to have you on. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. This is your first time on Inside Economics. Yes, it is. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Well, you know, Scott is a. Uh, consumer expert, an expert on uh, particularly the American consumer. And you've been with us for how long, Scott? A little over 20 years now. <gasps> Is that wow. right? 20 years? Yeah. I, I did not know. I, I thought somehow it was like 10, but it's <laughs> Oh my goodness gracious. Who Did I hire you? Who hired you? Uh, you did. Yeah. I did. I hired you. Of course. That was a great <laughs> yeah. hire 20 years ago. And uh, you came from JCPenney, as I recall. That's correct. Does anyone yep. remember J.C. Penny? <laughs> of course. Come on. Really? There's there's still a few stores around. Are are there really? I did not know yeah. that. Is there? Yes. They're still oh, yeah. kicking. I thought they went bankrupt for some reason. Well, they did, but they uh, they've come out of it with new ownership, and they they do still exist. I did not know. Any um, J.C. Pennies here in the Philadelphia region? Do I'm not know? sure. There's certainly none yeah. particularly close. So I I haven't been to one yeah. in a long time. But I I, right. I I I read about them periodically. I, I kind of track how they're doing. So, okay, so they're definitely so, still around. So Scott, there was this uh, your your boss uh, at JC Penny. He was a really good economist. I, I can't remember his name. Who was that? Ira Silver. Ira Silver. Ira. Right. Do you, yeah. He's, you've chatted with him at all, or is he? No, I've lost or, touch. Yeah, with lost him. touch. Yeah. Good guy. Very good guy. Uh, but it's good to have you on because we're going to talk about the American consumer, the, in my mind, the key between uh, continued expansion, growth, and a recession, the firewall, so to speak. So we're going to talk about that uh, in depth. Uh, just as a, a, a side point, uh, we were supposed to have uh, Princeton University professor Alan Blinder on. Great guy, done a lot of work with Alan over the years, and uh, he lost his voice or came pretty close to it. And he has a sonorous, sonorous, that's a, that's a word, right? Sonorous, sonorous. <laughs> I don't know. I had to Google that. I was like, this is another Zandy word. <laughs> no, but it's a real word. It's a real right. word. Yeah. Right. Sonorous. He's got a very sonorous voice and we, we wanted the world to hear that. So uh, we postponed until uh, next Friday. So next Friday. And uh, we're very much looking forward to that. You know, I, I think I might've said this in the past, but you know, there's some economists that, no matter what they say, pretty much I disagree with, you know, Ryan's me in that camp. <laughs> yeah. Number one. Yeah. <laughs> only kidding. Only kidding. And there's some economists, no matter what they, almost no matter what they say, I say, yeah, that makes sense. That's right. And Alan Blinder is like, I don't think I've ever heard him say a thing 
that I disagree with. You know, it's really weird, bizarre. Uh, I don't, I don't know if he would take comfort in that or not, but it's true. Uh, you know, and uh, I can't wait to have him on. It'd be really fun to have a conversation with him. But let's talk about the American consumer, and maybe can I do it this way? Can I? A hog the mic for, of course, I've been hogging the mic, but can I continue to hog the mic here for just a few minutes, lay out a case, and then turn to each of you guys to, you know, push back, uh, you know, disagree, agree, you know, provide color, flesh it out, you know, those, all those things. Sound okay? We say no. Yep. Uh, <laughs> no. Because no. <laughs> I don't have a plan B. You got a plan B? Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Go All right plan I go with your plan B. What's your plan B? Okay. But and of course, we're going to do the game, uh, the statistics game. And I, I think we should spend, you know, a little bit more than we typically do on recession probabilities. I'm just getting a little nervous. You should be. Uh, I should yeah. be. But, you, should you know, be. it depends on the on the day and the time of day, uh, you know, how I feel about things uh, and recession odds. But yeah, we should, let's, let's talk about that. And we'll, I think we need to resurrect, I think, Maybe it was you, Ryan, who suggested we resurrect some of those statistics we've been looking at back a year ago or so when the podcast started uh, to gauge where we are in the business cycle. That would be helpful. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Here, this is the case. So, you know, my, uh, you know, my, uh, my view and the, 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 uh, the baseline outlook that we continue to hold to, the baseline being the most likely scenario in the middle of distribution of possible outcomes is a non-recessionary scenario, right? The economy, the U.S. economy, and we're focused on the U.S. economy here, is uh, you know, obviously going to struggle. Already growth is weakening, but it's going to make its way through without going into a full-blown outright economic downturn. Uh, and uh, there's a number of arguments as to why that's the case, but the uh, argument at the top of the list is the American consumer. And uh, the consumer is the firewall, in my mind, between con- continued economic growth, albeit weak, and a recession, an outright recession. And the firewall, the consumer feels like they're in good shape, more or less. I mean, yes, the firewall is on fire. Uh, that's the inflation. The high inflation is cutting into real incomes, people's purchasing power. And and most times that would be a real problem. Eight, eight, nine percent inflation, you know, would be wage growth five percent. That would be pretty tough to digest. Consumers would be pulling back, but uh, less of a problem in the current context because households, consumers have a lot of uh, extra savings, excess savings. You know, savings they built up during the pandemic, either because if you're on the high income side, you were sheltering in place and not spending a lot of money or as much money as you typically do. You couldn't travel. You couldn't go to ball games. You couldn't go to restaurants. You saved it. And then for lower income households, low middle income households, you have excess saving because of all the government support that was provided during the pandemic. Five trillion dollars worth uh, stimulus checks, three rounds of stimulus checks, unemployment expanded, enhanced unemployment insurance, rental assistance, you know, a long list of things. Uh, also, uh, the firewall feels strong, the consumer, because uh, job, there are a lot of jobs. Uh, we're still creating, at least through the month of June, a lot of jobs, and we should come back to that. Unemployment is low, 3.6. You know, wage growth is, has not kept up with inflation, but it's not, it, it has accelerated, you know, it's 5 6%. So 
depending on, uh, and for low wage workers, the lowest wage workers is actually has kept up with inflation. The wage gains there have been more, more significant. Leverage is low. Uh, uh, households delevered, reduced their debt loads during the financial crisis and the post-crisis period. Uh, you know, leverage is starting to pick up again. People have been borrowing, but pretty consistent with incomes uh, and no, nothing, you know, kind of, I mean, if you look at household debt relative to income, it feels it declined after the crisis and now pretty stable. And debt service is very low because, you know, interest rates up until recently have been very low. Consumers have done a good job of locking in the previously low interest rates, record low interest rates through refinancing waves. So the if you're a homeowner, you probably have a mortgage with a three and a half to four percent mortgage rate, and that's 30-year fixed or 15-year fixed, it's not going to rise. Uh, so leverage debt service is low. And yeah, the stock market is down, uh, although I don't know if you guys have noticed, but it's had a good couple of weeks here, it's come back a bit. But say it's down 20%, but the house prices are up 20%. So the net is consumers are as wealthy today as they were a year ago, and they're a lot wealthier than they were three years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago. So you you know, you add it all up and it seems to me that it suggests that the consumer is going to hang tough. You know, they're not spending with abandon. You know, they're going, they're not going out there and partying hard. In fact, you remember back about a year or two ago, there's a lot of speculation that they would be at this point in time because they have all that excess saving. That doesn't seem like what that's what they're doing. They're just doing what they do. You know, spending at a pace is consistent with a more typical kind of economic environment, kind of the pre-pandemic environment, uh, you know, not too much, not too little, just enough to keep the economy going. Okay. So and, and as long as that continues, as long as the consumer hangs tough, that firewall uh, stays up, uh, the economy should continue to navigate through because the consumer drives the train. They're the biggest part of what goes on in the in the economy. And if they're doing their thing, we should be okay. By the way, just as a side point, then I'll stop, get your reaction to all this, is that the it feels like the American consumer is driving the train for the entire global economy, right? They're, you know, they're buying everything we produce here in the US and a lot from overseas. The US trade deficit's been gapping out in the in fact, the biggest drag on GDP growth in the last, certainly since the beginning of this year, and probably for the for the entire since this time last year is the gapping out of the trade deficit, which goes to the consumer, American consumer hanging top. Obviously the strong dollar also is contributing to that. But the consumer's driving is a firewall for the, uh, for the US economy and it's kind of driving the train for the global economy. Very different than was the case during the teeth of the pandemic or back in the financial crisis when China, Chinese businesses were kind of driving the train. That's, that's, China has been struggling because of the COVID lockdowns, but the US is kind of leading the way here. Okay, I just, uh, I just laid it out there for you, that long soliloquy and uh, maybe not a Shakespeare soliloquy, but, you know, Zandy soliloquy. And uh, what do you think? And let me, uh, let me turn first to Scott, because uh, he's our guest and the consumer expert. What do you think, Scott? Um, I, I think fundamentally... I agree with your conclusion, although I'm a little concerned that you may be downplaying some of the risks. Um, and I guess I'll start with your discussion of debt because I was looking at that recently. And if you look at the trend in the growth in consumer debt prior to the pandemic and 
look at the level now, we're actually above where that trend would have suggested. Now, debt burdens are very low because the composition of debt has changed a lot. Um, during the pandemic, you know, credit card balances, which are among the highest interest rate debt and out there plunged and mortgage debt started taking off, which of course has relatively low required payments because it's lower rate and longer term. Um, so debt burdens are low, but the level of debt um, is actually, um, if anything, a bit lower than, or a bit higher than a trend analysis prior to, to the pandemic. Um, oh, wait a second. So, so Scott, so you're saying you agree with the conclusion that the American consumer is doing what they need to do to keep the economy moving forward. You agree with that? Yes, but I, I agree. You're saying there's a lot of risk to that. And the first thing you go to to highlight the risk is is debt, the borrowing, the leverage. That, yes. Well, it all, a lot of it ties back to inflation. Well, I mean, we're obviously going to spend a lot of time on that because you know, the inflation is now forcing a big increase in credit card borrowing. And we don't know for sure yet how much of that is transactional and how much of it is actually evolving. But, you know, if we shift the composition of debt back towards consumer debt, when the level's already high, then you potentially um, do run into a rapidly rising um, debt burden. Let me turn to Chris, because Chris spends a lot of energy and his time on uh, consumer credit, household credit. Does that ring true to you, Chris? I mean, what, I mean, I, I mean, of all the things I just laid out, the thing I felt most strong and good about was debt and leverage. That was not where I would have gone if I was going to push back on the kind of the narrative I laid out. But what, what do you think? Is that something we should be concerned about, the household leverage and debt? I think so. I, I tend to agree with Scott, I, and I think, uh, <laughs> <laughs> my perspective, and just kind of more generally with your comments, I think it's a bit sanguine in terms of looking at, yeah, the agri. If you think of the consumer, kind of the aggregate consumer, you know, it it obscures a lot of things that are going on underneath, and that I think the debt issue is particularly hard hard felt by the uh, lower income part of the population. So. You do see debt rising. You do see bank card usage, what, up 16% year over year. We have another category in our Equifax credit forecast database called consumer finance, which are unsecured loans. That's up 22%. Yeah, but that's $100 billion, right? Or yeah, but, that, but that's where the, a lot of those uh, lower income um, households are, are in terms of accessing credit, right? If you have a lower credit score, if you don't have all the um, ability to access, say, a home equity loan or a, even a, a credit card, you go to these other debt sources. So seeing that rise very rapidly, I think, is a, an indication of the of the weakness, certainly of of that part part of the uh, consumer segment. So you, you you're focusing on, and we have great data here. So the <laughs> data is fat, fabulous, right? We get yep. uh, data from Credit Bureau Equifax every month, all the credit files in the country. So we know exactly, you know, for the month of June, how much debt is outstanding. Much better than the Fed's data, by the way, which, you know, if you want to get into the weeds and Chris can do it, our data is saying something different than the Fed data, right? The Fed data has been showing very, very strong increases in, in consumer credit, revolving credit. And our data shows an increase, but not, not nearly to the same degree as the Fed data. Is that, that, that's correct. Do I have that right? That's all you're talking about, yeah. the G19? The G19. The, the Federal Fed Reserve Series. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, trend wise, they're both showing increases. Right? Yeah. But in terms of the levels, yeah, there's some some differences there. And I think ours is a uh, because we have a little bit more detail. We're going back to the actual source of credit report uh, information. I do think it's it's more accurate uh, from that perspective. Let me let me push way back though. Yeah. I'm gonna, okay. I'm gonna push really hard back on this. All right. So if I add up total revolving credit, revolving is bank card debt, retail card debt. And then I throw in your consumer finance, just for you. I'll throw that in. You know, hundred billion. Is it hundred or maybe it's two hundred billion? I can't remember. For context, yeah, a yeah. listener, the you know total household debt is sixteen trillion dollars, right? So we're talking, you know, very, very. Yeah, much. you're throwing in mortgage, home equity. Yeah, yeah, right? the whole yeah. shooting match, the whole shooting. But okay, but if I take all revolving car, bank card, credit, retail card, and consumer finance, the level today is only now back to pre-pandemic, right? If you take a look yeah. at that chart, it's only, so the level is no higher than it was in early 2020 before the pandemic hit. Here's the second yeah, thing. But it's rising rapidly, right? Well, okay. But inflation is rising rapidly. So if I'm just buying the same stuff that I was buying a year ago, it's going to be up in the eight, eight, nine, it's going to be up 9% by definition, right? Because inflation is up 9%. I've been paying 9% more for gasoline, food, rent, exactly. airline yeah. tickets, you know, that kind of stuff, right? But incomes are not up eight, nine percent. Right? Oh, that's a different story. That's oh, a different okay. story. That's a different yeah. story, though. Well, that's, I think it's germane to the story, right? If yeah, you're right. If if prices were going up, yeah, debt should go up at the same rate. No problem, as long as incomes are are offsetting that as well. Yeah. The disconnect it, is the problem, right? You do have uh, but, but accelerating the, inflation. That's going up. That rapidly. goes back to real income shock. It's not yeah. leverage per se. It's it's the it's the fact that my purchasing power is reduced, right? So, I, I guess I guess okay, they're 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 related. But here's the other the other thing, and, and and Scott alluded to it. How much of what we're seeing is simply I'm borrowing, or or simply I'm revolving more. You know, I'm just using my card more. I you know I'm feel I've got a lot of cash in my bank, bank account from the excess saving. And I feel more, and, I, and, and I'm now spending more on things that would require, or you would generally use for a card. Like if I yeah. get on an airplane, I'm going to use my card, right? Cause I want those miles on my card. Yeah. So at the higher end, we do see uh, a credit card debt accelerating there as well, but I'm not as concerned about that population. I think it's for the reasons that you mentioned, right? People are, are going back there uh, to business travel or personal travel. They are using their credit cards more at that end. But the nice thing about our data is that we can break it out by credit score band. Yeah. And so we see that not only is the debt rising rapidly in that category, but it's also rising very rapidly at the lower end of the um, credit score distribution. Right. And that I associate with people not so much using the credit card for uh, these other uh, discretionary items, but because of necessities, right? Prices are going up and they have to tap into credit because their incomes are not sufficient. Here's the other thing I've heard, and it's just anecdotal, and maybe we have data and I, I'm just not aware of it. The payment rate, that is what percent of the, the card a bill you get every month, you pay back or you, you know, uh, pay back. And that's been very, very high. People are paying back on their cards. And at least through the month of May, June, and this is anecdotal that uh, just talking to people in the industry, those payment rates remain really high, you know, for the, for the folks in the industry, uncomfortably high because they, they want people to revolve, right? That's how they make in a significant way, how they make their money. When they lend you money at a high interest rate, that's where they're making money. So they don't, they would, they don't want you to default. They don't want that, but they love for you to revolve. 
that 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 amount outstanding so that you know you pay interest on it is there any data out there have you seen any data on that you know particular statistic i i just i don't think it's in our database from equifax is it scott do you know i thought it was i haven't looked at it recently but i did oh, I is thought it? it was in the okay. equifax database i mean i think that was one of the ones that at least back in the day when i followed it more closely was perhaps viewed as with a little more suspicion less reliability than some of the the hard numbers but because they were estimating it they didn't they didn't equifax doesn't receive payment data they have to estimate it and yeah oh yeah so do you know chris do you, do you know that you know that data really well it is in there i haven't looked at it you haven't looked at it either but uh, yeah, okay i will take it it wouldn't yeah, surprise me though it wouldn't yeah. surprise me if uh now up till now yeah people are you know to your point if you look in aggregate as well right people do have savings right at the higher end certainly that and, and a lot okay. of it is going to be at the high end. I mean, the, the folks on this call, for example, we're all probably spending more at the gas pump and we're paying it all off. Not me. I'm not and driving so- at all. You know, I got my, <laughs> I got, I got my, my least car I'm telling you, I got it. I'm telling like 20 months ago and guess how many miles I have on it. Just guess. I'm, I'm typically 12 K a year or something. <laughs> I believe, right. You can drive up to 12 K. Yeah. Are you I, taking this I, one? Up and back from Florida? I have not. No, this is okay. oh, so that's, yeah. that changes the calculation right there. Yeah. <laughs> but even that, even that, I mean, my other car where I'm racked up a lot of miles on. So this is seven thousand miles. Seven thousand. That's so it. This, so this is the this is the daily commute to Wawa to get the coffee and back. That, that's <laughs> it. That's it. Yeah. Or you know, uh, I might one sundry you know, i have to get wine you know every so often so uh do that what else do i do i go to the gym you know i go to the gym i'm constructing your uh cpi basket right <laughs> on, the, on the fly on the fly <laughs> just yeah. don't add hoagies to it so some of us still have kids that were either taxiing or who are driving themselves all over creation and on, on our you know and then using our credit card when they go to the gas pump and mm-hmm. uh so I, I can tell you my uh, my transactional balance is is up a lot from a year ago, just for that. What was that whole thing about hoagies? I missed that. The- I was just saying not to include that in your basket for the CPI since you are anti hoagie. I'm well, I'm not anti hoagie. I just can't eat hoagies. I, I'm very pro hoagie actually. I just wish I could eat them, you know, mm. but they don't agree with me, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, anyway, back to leverage and debt. Um, okay, so you guys are saying that maybe the firewall, the consumer isn't quite as strong as I think. Oh, here's the other thing on debt I want to just throw out. Delinquency rates are low, right? I mean, they're, they're going up, but you know, they're just they're what I consider to be normalizing back to pre-pandemic because they had fallen dramatically during the pandemic because all the government support, right? All of the forbearance and you know, uh, student loans and mortgages and rental payments and, you know, all kinds of things that allowed people to not pay on their debt. And the result is delinquency rate, measured delinquency rates, at least in, from the credit bureaus, because you couldn't report someone on forbearance as being delinquent on the credit file. They're just normalizing. Or am I missing something? Is there something in the data that you're observing that I'm not observing on, on the delinquency side, which would which be a real right. sign of stress, obviously. They are low, but they are rising. And, and I would point out the denominator effect, right? We just said that their yeah, bank card ba- balances are going up 18, 20%, right? That's going to suppress the, 
delinquency rate. So, but we can look by vintage. I have not done that. You know, like what is the delinquency rate on all loans originated? You know, in 2019. I, I have you been looked at that? Anyone looked at that? We probably might, that'd be a good thing to take a look at, just to see. But anyway, yeah, I mean, they're all across the. It's not like anything is really screaming at this point, but. Um, yeah, just something to bear in mind. That bear in mind. It yeah. could, okay, it could rise. I don't hey, know, Ryan. Scott, do any... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. Anything to add to that, Scott? I know you look at the data pretty carefully. Yeah, well, I guess my my thing with this, like so much else in the economy today, is is can we make the smooth landing, or as the delinquency rates rise, are they just going to you know blow through equilibrium and and turn into a problem that that's going to be a threat, you know, say sometime next year. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't worry about, you know, credit quality this year, but, you know, how, right. how much room do we have and can we really, can we really level it off? Um, you know, and, and again, it's going to depend to some degree on, on inflation relative to incomes and, and how that plays out over the next 12 months. But, yeah, you know, you know, relatively high, if, if inflation remains above, you know, incomes, then I, I, I worry no, totally. I worry about the strength of this this piece of the firewall over time. Totally, totally. I, in my, mm-hmm. my mind, that is the chink in the firewall. I mean, if inflation doesn't come in, you know, if it stays high, and real incomes remain under pressure, and you know, low middle income households run out of that excess saving, then we got a problem. But that you know that that's not our baseline. But that is definitely right. a problem. Yeah. But you put your finger right on it. I think that that uh, broadly why my st- feeling about what's going on ebbs and flows daily, you know, hourly, month, week, uh, minute by minute, because it's, you know, the plane is coming into the tarmac. Is it kind of, you know, it's coming in, it's coming slow, growth is slowing as scripted, you know, that's exactly what it's supposed to do, but is it going to actually land or is it going to, skid off the runway or crash or what, you know, and that's where we are. And it's kind of, and the winds are blowing, you know, the cross currents are blowing here. So it makes it very, very nerve wracking. Hey, Ryan, on this debt issue, any, anything else you want to add on that? No, I think we covered it all. I think the key thing is inflation. I mean, it's $493 additional cost for the average household to buy the same basket of goods this year as they did last year. That's an enormous burden, particularly on Chris pointed out, lower income households. So I think, you know, in aggregate, it looks like everything's okay, but I think with up and down the income distribution, there's, there's some stress points. Okay. So, okay. Now, so going back to the frame, I, you know, there, there's the consumer, the firewall, the mm-hmm. things that are supporting the consumer. We took, we just talked about debt, debt and leverage. And that's the last thing I would have gone to, but that's the first thing Scott went to, but okay. Fair mm-hmm. enough. The first thing I would have gone to is what you just did, and that's real incomes, the, the high mm-hmm. inflation rate. Yep. So if inflation stays at nine on CPI and wage growth stays at five, and that's where it feels like it roughly is in aggregate, that's minus four real income. You can only do that for so long. You can. We're fortunate that households, including low-income households, have a lot of excess saving built up during the pandemic. So they seem to be supplementing the hit to their real purchasing power by drawing down on their savings. And that you can see kind of see it in the data in terms of, of uh, saving rates. Uh, but you can only do that for so long. Uh, and so this feels like the, the most serious thing. Mm-hmm. But, on, but on that front, so let's think about, let's talk about that for a second, because I think that's key. And that, that goes to the rate of inflation. You have this great chart 
that decomposes or great data that decomposes actually I, I will say Chris improved on your on your he chart. did he did that was a good point yeah. to add, add rent yeah now I, I I stole Chris's chart and I tweeted it did you guys notice this you didn't find my Twitter feed Twitter feed no I, I was, I'm having I was, Twitter yeah. problems so what you, you're having Twitter problems what yeah, do you I mean can't get, no I one, can't post I, no oh you got I apologize to, to everyone who's tweeting I can't actually respond <laughs> Oh, that's right. IT he, issues he's, here. He's all over your Twitter feed. I've noticed. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, well, now my work is doubled. You know, I got to keep up with both of you on Twitter. I, I know <laughs> it's it's crazy. This whole thing, this whole Twitter thing. But where was I? Oh, uh, so the decomposition of inflation, and you know, take the nine percent CPI inflation through June. Actually, precise, just to be precise, everybody, nine point one. But let's just say it's nine to round. Uh, of that five percentage points roughly is uh is uh is is food is energy right and then you got another uh percentage point or so that's food which is also mostly energy because of diesel prices right. then you got another one and a half percentage points due to supply chain disruptions that still are creating havoc in some industries like the vehicle industry and high vehicle prices you mm -hmm. net all that out you're down to two and a half percent and that's the Fed's target, two and a half percent. So if energy prices simply go flat, they don't even have to decline, they go flat. That And food prices go flat, which seems more than likely if energy prices do. And the supply chain disruption, I know there's a lot of ifs, but you know, just go with me. <laughs> I can, mm -hmm. I can see everyone. It's like a volcano ready to burst. <laughs> the, 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 you know, the supply chain issues continue to improve and they've been improving. They are. Mm -hmm. Then we go to two and a half, right? No, I mean that's okay. So that's the baseline forecast. What do you what do you think of that? And uh, you know, obviously, uh, the risks around. Chris, let's go back to you because you're the one who's most. I think it seems like you're the most skeptical of that outlook. We will get back to two and a half. I'm I'm not uh, yeah. doubting that. It's just a question of timing and how, right? So right. Um, you know, those are a lot of ifs, and I think there are other ifs that are not included there, right? You're assuming everything moves in that one direction, yeah. but you know another disruption, ECB hikes fifty basis point. Right? There are lots of things going on here that uh, can uh, can impact the uh, the outlook. Yeah, but is that consistent with high rent inflation? Because I mean, rental price inflation tends to be persistent, and you mm -hmm. know, house prices haven't house price growth hasn't come in yet. I mean, I'm sure it's going to, but it hasn't yet. So. You know, it needs to come in and then that's going to take some time before it feeds through to rents. So, you know, rental price inflation is going to stay high for a while. Mm -hmm. And doesn't that, can you really get to two and a half if you've got, you know, rent price inflation at, I don't know what, four or higher? Five, it's five and a half, isn't okay, it? Okay, five. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I'm, a, yes, that's a good point. Uh, so, so. Uh, rent inflation is a CPI of shelter, which is tied to rent growth, has been uh, accelerating and adding more and more to inflation. Going back to the low vacancy rates across the housing stock, this severe shortage of homes. Uh, but I'm a, in that decomposition I just did, that's through June, and it includes the contribution of higher rent inflation to CPI. So I'm assuming that that remains the same going forward. Uh, about the same. And it probably will rise a little bit more before it comes yeah. back in. But my guess is by, you know, 2024, it'll start coming back in and be pretty consistent with where it is today. Still contributing a lot, 
to inflation, but still consistent with 2.5%. And by the way, 2.5%, that's kind of the high end of the, what I consider to be the Fed's target. They never said two and a half. They say two, which is the core consumer expenditure deflator. But given the, compos- given the CPI is mostly around housing, you know, it's much higher weights on housing and other measurement issues, you know, two and a half seems to be the high end of the range. That's kind of my take on things, but uh, you know, just, so yeah, I am counting for the higher rate rent inflation, but Chris back to you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, you're right. I mean, there's all kinds of risks to what I just said about where inflation is headed, but those are risks, right? You're not, you can't forecast those things, right? You can't, I guess you can forecast there's something that. By def, you know, yeah. for some period of time, there's something else is going to go wrong. By definition, almost by by you know, just probability draws, you're going to get that, and therefore you're going to get something along the way, and therefore we're not going to get inflation coming in as fast as we think. Yeah, I don't know where the next disruption in the oil market is going to be, which specific country, which specific area, but pretty good chance there's going to be one in the next six twelve months. This takes a hurricane. <laughs> Well, yeah, I was just thinking that you get a big hurricane in the Gulf that you know yep. disrupts yeah, production for a while, that's and I think they're forecasting an active season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. But that you, so that's an interesting problem as a forecaster, though, right? Because you, your baseline can't include or jet could it or should it? It should. Include? Right. How? I mean, because you don't even know what it is. If it's one thing, if it's a hurricane that wipes out a refinery on the Texas coast. It's another thing if the EU decides to actually implement its sanctions on oil. It's another thing if the Russians stop shipping natural gas to, to or in stop, uh, you know, ag shipments coming out of Ukraine and Russia. So how do you, how do you account for that? Well, implicit in your oil price forecast, you're making some assumptions about those other, you can keep the uh, forecast for oil prices higher than what you would otherwise expect assuming that there will be some other, you attach some uh, high probability some, to one of these other events. Well, I'm, I'm, we're basically doing that though, right? Because we we're at $100 oil and that embeds market expectations for all the risks you just articulated, right? So mm-hmm. presumably, you know, maybe, maybe it doesn't capture it fully, but presumably they attach some, imbe- traders are attaching some probability to, you know, all of those some. different scenarios, right? That's right. So, That's right. Yeah. I guess I'm attaching an even higher probability. A probability. Than they are. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. I mean, I, I, that, that to me, you're right. I, that is the biggest chink, potential chink in the firewall. And that is, you know, inflation, inflation remains higher for longer. Yeah. Cause uh, if that, if that's the case, then we blow through that excess saving and, you know, consumers have to pull back and the firewall comes down. All right. Okay. So we talked about leverage and debt. Uh, we talked about real income purchase power inflation. Uh, what about or Ryan? I'll turn to you next. What do you? Oh, you 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 brought up the real income. I should turn to Chris next. Chris, what is wh- which? What would you point to? Well, of all those things I just said, I in my rank ordering, the least I'm thing I'm worried about is leverage. The most thing I'm worried about is inflation. What about you? Uh, or did I even miss something that you would point out when thinking about the consumer and how consumers are going to spend going forward? Well, I think it's a question of timing, right? Uh, in terms of the most immediate threat, I would agree with you. Uh, if inflation remains high, real wages are low or negative, right? P- consumers are going to pull back in the short term immediately, right? 
Um, but I think Scott is uh, thinking three steps ahead of us here with the debt, saying, you know, even if we get through this uh, this patch here, we on the other end of this, as we get into early 2023, we may still have a debt issue, right? If consumers are piling up all this uh, variable rate debt, interest rates are rising, that's going to put even more pressure on their balance sheets later on. So, uh, so I think both matter. Uh, I think it's a question of which uh, what's your time horizon, which are most focused oh. on. Oh, interesting. So, so your, your inflation and leverage would be kind of at the top of your list of concerns, but depending on your horizon, your timing. That's right. That's uh, right. Inflation most immediately. And then if you look out a year or two, leverage becomes more of an issue if current trends continue. Correct. Right. Because it takes times for those, if you're talking about leverage in terms of the problem, right? You can you can put on some additional debt now. You can keep making your payments for a while, but uh, when it becomes an issue, will be later on when uh, when things slow down, perhaps, and when the rates are continuing to rise. That's when the debt burden will become more. And, and when you've blown through your excess savings, exactly, which at, which at the low end, particularly, probably isn't going to take that long. Well, I don't know about that. So let's turn to excess saving. I mean, we do our. You know, obviously, it's hard to estimate, right? But we do our calculation. You do them, Scott, right? You yep. and Matt Walsh do these estimates based on the survey of consumer finance and um, the financial accounts, the Fed data. And we, you know, it's lagged because uh, the data here is lagged. We have data through the first quarter of 2022. So let's say March, because I think it's year, it's uh, month ending data. So it's a little bit lagged. But when you look at that data, it, it gives you the sense that people have a lot of excess saving across the income distribution. Even those folks in the bottom part of the distribution, I think the bottom quintile, we estimated excess saving at about $5,000. So if that, just take that group, which is a little, it's a group of, it's a little bit weird to look at that group because I don't know that, that there's a lot of things going on there, retirees and students and other stuff. So let's just use that group, 5K. If, you know, Ryan's calculation is that, you know, the, higher inflation is costing the typical household 500 bucks more a month to buy the same goods and services as they were a year ago. That's probably on the high end for those folks in the bottom quintile, but let's just go with it. That, that gives them 10 months of you know cushion until hopefully starts, inflation comes in. And then they start to have a real problem. If you do that's, you know, by the way, guys, that's what economists or listeners, that's what economists call a back of the envelope calculation. Uh, but would you concur with that kind of uh, analysis uh, or anything to say about that on the excess savings side? And by the way, uh, just to round it out, for the typical American household, so kind of in the middle of the distribution of income, you know, excess saving is probably closer to, you know, 7,500, 8, 8,000. And for folks at the high end, it's like crazy high. It's like the top yeah. quintile is like 100K in excess savings. So a lot of savings. But uh, is that the way I characterize things on the excess saving consistent with the way you think about it, uh, Scott? Yeah, I think that's fair. I guess my concern, though, is that, I mean, your 10 month number is on average. Um, you're going to have an increasing share of consumers that have used it up as time passes. And when you yeah. get to that average number, you've probably got something on the order of half or maybe even a little more because we know distributions tend to be skewed. Um, so, you know, you're starting to see folks in trouble, you know, well before that. And, and I also, you know, while I think our 
excess savings estimates are good. I do worry about some of the underlying assumptions, and I wonder if we may not be, um, you know, overestimating how much the low-income folks have because, you know, a lot of our assumptions are that, you know, shares that were in place in 2019 have been maintained, and, um, you know, <laughs> nothing much was maintained in 2020 from 2019. Yeah. So. You know, and, and you know, although we, we know, know the aggregate, we know the ag. We're pretty well. Com- yeah, we're pretty comfortable. Well, well, and, even there, maybe. Yeah, because get, given given the magnitude of revisions to savings, um, historically, saving gets revised up, not down. But regardless, yeah. we're two point five trillion in, in overall excess saving. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of excess saving. No, I agree. I agree. I, I think that's a huge buffer, and I think that's and that's why I said at the start, I, I think the risks maybe higher than what you portrayed in your opening monologue, but I agree with your forecast because soliloquy, I do think Scott, not monologue. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Sol- soliloquy. Yeah. Uh, forgive me. Please. Um, but I mean, that's why I agree. Some with respect, I, please. Sol- I do little, think little, consumers. A modicum of respect. You know, I don't get it from my two co-hosts, but you know, I guess, <laughs> please. <laughs> You know, my, my quibble is more is more whether you're underplaying the risks than with the baseline. I because I agree, I agree with the baseline. I think there's a lot of excess savings out there, and I think that you know will under baseline assumptions that will cushion us through. So I'm not I'm not challenging the baseline. I'm just questioning whether you're underplaying the risks. Got it. And, and Chris, you did some some you, you looked at the uh, which is a. Uh, goes back to this question about how much excess saving is uh, available for low-income households, particularly the bottom quintile. Yeah. You, you looked at the distributional financial accounts. You want to ex- explain that analysis? Because I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. So it's a bit of a, a, a narrower definition that I use, and it it, show, it paints a different picture here. So the Fed Federal Reserve does put out a, um, a data set of uh, distributional accounts where they go through, they have a process for taking their... Uh, their income product data, um, the national accounts, and distributing them across different deciles of income, of wealth, uh, by age uh, cohort, by race, right? So there are a number of different uh, cuts that they provide. If you look at the uh, income distribution, and I focus just on the um, liquid assets, so look at checkable deposits and currencies. How much people do actually, how much cash on hand do people actually have in their accounts? If you look at that, um, series and you break it out by income, you actually see that the bottom 20% of households have less um, cash on hand than they did prior to the pandemic. So yeah. that's where I come up with the conclusion that you know they're they are uh, that that group is really suffering much more than what you see at the other end of, of the distribution. And it also explains why they may, would be going out and getting more credit, right? Accessing more credit to supplement uh, incomes because they don't have the buffer that the other groups do. Yeah. And in in, that was a really cool analysis because so, you're just looking at things that deposit accounts, you know, as yep. you say, and you can measure that, right? You, the banks report that and the Fed brings that into the data. Yeah. It's hard data. If you... <laughs> hard, uh, quote unquote, hard data. Uh, but across all the other income groups, you know, the top 80% or quintile, yeah, 80% of the distribution the pot, the amount of cash sitting in those accounts is higher, much higher, much higher, much, much, much higher. Especially really that bottom twenty percent is what you're saying, is it's actually lower than 
it it did rise because uh, you did it did you looked at it a year ago and it was higher a year ago and it has come in over the past yeah. year for that for that bottom quintile. That's yeah. right. So that's that's, right. that's different than what we or Scott and Matt figured out using the other methodology. That of course you're looking at the pot liquid accounts. Exactly. Be, so that's yeah. Who, there are other yeah. They could pay down classes. debt. They could have paid yeah. down debt. They could have who knows you know. But but nonetheless, so they're not they're not necessarily inconsistent. Correct. We right. just don't know. We just don't know. But yeah, yeah. That, that's a good point. Uh, the other thing I'd point out uh, in this regard, because we're focused on the income distribution, and and I agree, I do think low income households are, you know, got to be under pressure here, right? Particularly if you're not working, you know, if you're in got a fair folks that have been pushed out of the workforce because of the pandemic and other things, you're really having a hard time here, no doubt about it. But, and this sounds a little cold hearted, but the vast, vast majority of the spending that's done is done in the top part of the distribution of income. You know, I think the top, correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, and this is kind of a heuristic, a rule of thumb, the top third of the income distribution accounts for almost three-fourths of the spending, I believe. You know, something. Yeah, like I think I had two-thirds in my head, but yeah, okay. it's definitely something. I haven't checked that number in a few months, but yeah, it's definitely something like that. Um, that yeah, it, it's very disproportionate. But I guess that brings up another issue that that I've been wondering about, and that's um, well, I'll probably tie two things together. One is the stock market, and the other is confidence, um, because yeah. we know the confidence has come down, oh, the stock yeah, market point. has come down, and especially I mean I was just looking at your forecast for the for the stock market, and you do have it rebounding at least a little bit going forward now because it's, it's basically flat so though scott I, I, yeah I, I wouldn't characterize it it's basically okay. we're, we're down to four thousand on the s p which by the way is where we are today and it basically goes sideways here for a while until the fed stops raising interest rates okay. but it, but if that's the case if the stock market goes sideways for a while and then stock market gains go further and further into the past for high income consumers mm. Mm-hmm. Does that, especially in an environment where confidence is falling, and it's falling, I mean, yeah, probably more at the low end, but across the income distribution, um, do we have to worry about the high-end consumers continuing to draw down their excess savings and spend as opposed to saying, okay, the rest of my excess savings is my retirement savings or my kids' college savings or some other long-term savings that I may not have done enough of prior to the pandemic, and I'm going to tighten my belt and you know pull things in a bit. And you know, again, that's probably not my baseline forecast, but you know, I really I worry about it. Yeah, you're a worrier. I can tell. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it, it, there's two, two things. One, if you go back to Chris's data on what's sitting in deposit accounts, it's shocking how much cash is sitting in those deposit <laughs> accounts. And my get, it's not, it's not like it's gone into another asset, right? A home or it probably has done that too for the high income houses because they've had so much cash, but they, they got a lot of cash sitting in the bank account. And my guess is if you get into a scrape or, you know, your income is impaired, you will draw that down pretty quickly because you don't need to sell an asset. You don't need to sell stock. You don't need to sell home. You don't, you don't need to borrow money. 
you got the cash sitting right there that you're you right. Know, but but I guess act. But I guess my feeling is that spending by high income groups is never a question of access to cash. Right. They they always have that. It's a question of confidence and desire to spend relative to um, concerns about future needs. Uh, yeah, but they, even high income households go get cautious, right? I mean, it's not like they don't get cautious. And I just say, right, I no. just wonder. If, I, get, if, I guess so that's much, like, if you look at your bank account, you got so much cash sitting there, but it's less likely but, you're going to turn cautious. Unless you're um, putting that cash into a different bucket. If you're saying, yeah, if you're saying, yes, I have this cash, but I consider this cash my retirement savings. And the only reason it's in cash is because I'm scared the market's going to go down more and interest rates are going to go up more. And I don't know where the heck to invest it. So I'm going to leave it in cash until I figure out where to invest it. But I don't consider that part of my cash. I consider that part of my retirement fund. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Is that how you think about things? That, that is to a fair degree how oh, I think about okay. Yes, I, I do bucket money. I do tend you, to bucket money like that. Even in your checking account, you, you're bucketing that money. Uh, well, I tend to have a separate checking account for each bucket. But, oh, okay. Or, and, not, and it won't be a checking account. It'll be an online savings account. So I get at least you know an epsilon of interest, but a tiny bit of interest. But uh, that, that, And you know, after 20 years of working with you, that sounds like Scott would do that. <laughs> yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Smart. It's actually smart. Very smart. But you brought the other thing I wanted, you brought up uh, in, we should explore uh, and maybe I'll turn to you, Ryan is consumer sentiment. I, you know, I didn't bring that up in my frame. You know, I was, I was kind of going to the fundamentals, but people are really dour, down, pessimistic, blue. Um, Maybe you can think of a few more words to describe how they feel, but it's, it's pretty bad. A miasma. Oh, there's a good one. Oh, that's, that's a great one. There's a mm-hmm. miasma hanging over uh, consumers. How do you think about that? I mean, in, in the context of their spending and, you know, the firewall feels like it's pretty strong, but mm-hmm. you got pervading all of that, this, this, this pessimism. Uh, what, what do you think about that? How do you, how do you think about that in the context of the consumers hanging tough? So I'm less worried about, sentiment because the relationship between consumer spending and sentiment is pretty loose in the short run. So, you know, people can say one thing, but they do another. And also it depends on what measure of confidence you're looking at. So the conference board consumer confidence index, which is very sensitive to labor market conditions is holding up relatively well. Like it's not as, you know, it's not, you know, as depressed as the university of Michigan survey. And that's the one that gets all the headlines in the press uh, and that one's sensitive to the stock market and gasoline prices. So, you know, last month gasoline prices peaked, stock market was tanking, and it fell to the University of Michigan survey fell to a historical low. So, that's not too surprising. But in the end, you know, in the short run, people can say one thing and do another. So that's what I prefer to watch what they do rather than what they say. Yeah, I got a theory for you guys. I'm curious what you think of it. Uh, my sense of it is that if consumer sentiment was more typical, you know, it, it is bad. It is really bad. I mean, conference board survey better than the University of Michigan survey, but you know, it's still pretty low. Yeah. Uh, that if it was more typical, that consumer spending actually would be uh, the counterfactual would be a lot stronger consumer spending. People would be spending uh, more aggressively. 
But because sentiment has been so low, they've only been spending at a more typical pace, you know, exactly what they would have spent without the pandemic. I mean, I could take real consumer spending pre-pandemic up through this current time, draw a trend line through the spending before the pandemic and consumer spending today is exactly where that trend line is today. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? What I just said? Yeah. So they're spending, it went down obviously during the pandemic has come back up and it's like exactly where you'd expect it to be, which is weird given all the other things going on here. You know, the excess saving we just talked about, there's a lot of jobs, low unemployment, leverage is low. It's starting to rise, but it's low. People are wealthy. You would expect a lot more spending. And that's, that goes back to all the concerns about you know, demand-side inflation, that inflation is being driven by demand. And they were, people were concerned that it was because the consumer had all this extra cash that they were going to spend. But they haven't done that. They have not done that. And maybe that's because of this low sentiment. So wh- what do you think? Does that make any sense to anybody, that theory? I like I, I, I would push back. I would- huh? I would disagree. You would disagree. When okay. you model like real consumer spending, you know, and you just, you know, you can look at leverage, real disposable income, include different measures of consumer confidence. Sentiment explains very little of the near-term fluctuations in, in spending. It's real disposable income that drives the train. No, I totally agree. That you're but that's yeah. you just estimated an equation over some lengthy period of time. And I would mm-hmm. argue that there are periods of time. Oh, I see what you're saying. When that matters a lot, particularly around recessions and, and but the inflection in points, environment, right. mm-hmm. maybe yeah. maybe it, you know I agree with you. Typically, sentiment reflects the economy; it doesn't drive the economy; it doesn't yeah. drive consumer spending. But there are times when that's not true. The causality shifts, and, mm-hmm. and maybe that's something you know. That's kind of sort of what's going on here. It matters, but it the counterfactual is we would have a lot stronger spending if not for. The, you know, the very weak sentiment that exists. But but I guess the concern then is that sentiment it appears to be still declining, especially the conference board measure. I mean, maybe Michigan ought to be bottoming out just because it's- I think it bottomed low. out. Well, you know, yeah, it month. went up a, it a out. trivial, yeah. trivial amount in the last reading. But I mean, if you do something like the average between the two or something like that to get something that's a little more blended and sensible, then the trend is down. And so, you know, if confidence, if, if that trend remains in place, um, then don't you have to worry? If you are arguing that it's mattering, then you have to worry about that oh, yeah. impact growing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I do. But, uh, uh, but fortunately, gas prices are down. And Ryan's mm-hmm. right. That has a big impact on sentiment. Stock prices are up. That has an impact on sentiment. Um, and that's why the but University of Michigan probably will improve relative to the conference board because the job market is definitely mm-hmm. good. So, by the way, we should go to the job market. No, no one brought up the job market. You know, are we all assuming that? Oh, I was waiting for the stats game because I we know oh, that's we're going to wait on. for the stats game on the, on the job market. Okay. <laughs> but one one thing with sentiment, they break it up usually into present like consumers' assessment of present conditions and expectations, and the expectations continue to deteriorate. And you know, that's yeah. pulling down leading indicators, and then that's that's a little cause for concern. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I mean, at some point, actually, just throw it out there. Uh, the, and hopefully, hopefully, I don't take anyone's statistic, but uh, one of the best leading indicators of recession is the change in the con- conference board survey of consumer mm-hmm. sentiment. If that falls by more than twenty points, it's an index. So if it falls more than twenty points in a three-month period 
we always have recession and it's never falsely predicted recession. And that, you know, the intuition is clear that again, back to the causality at some points in time, particularly around recessions, causality shifts and sentiment drives spending decisions in the economy. People run for the bunker, so to speak, and stop spending because they're panicked by whatever's going on. And the conference board survey is down about 10 points over the last three months. So I'm watching that pretty carefully as the job market is going to weaken here, right? By mm-hmm. definition, it's going to and, weaken. But, but just to add to that, Mark, it's down all 10 points over the last two months. Well, I thought it was over the, well, what is it over the last three? I thought it was 10. But it's, it's, but yeah, but two or three months ago, we're about the same. Level. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. I get one more really bad month. I could be down 20 is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You get a 10 point drop in the next month and you're down 20. Yeah. Yeah. And it, that leads recessions, by the way, just a point of interest by, I think, four or five, six months, you know, something like that. So anyway. All right. Chris, I have a feeling his probability recession moved up. You would think. He's got to be consistent himself higher. It has moved up. Yes, it yeah. has. Yeah. Do you view that as a victory, by the way? I, that's just, no, no. I do uh, not want a recession. But yeah. But he also wants to be right. Yeah, I also want to be right. Also want to be right. Yeah. Okay, let's play the game. Uh, unless there's anything else, on, there's a gazillion things we can talk about the consumer. But I think we've been at this almost an hour. <laughs> we got the game, and we got to talk about probabilities of recession. So, anything else on the consumer, Scott? I missed or Chris, Ryan? That mm-hmm. no, I don't think we got it. We covered a lot of ground. We didn't talk about. We kind of indirectly talked about wealth. We didn't talk about house prices, but. That's we'll, we'll save that for another day. Maybe that's part of the statistics game that's coming up. Could be, could be because a lot of housing statistics came out this past week. Okay, the game statistics game. I know you guys get annoyed when I repeat the rules of the game, but we have to do this because Ryan cheats. I know he cheats. He just you got to mm-hmm. got to tell him you know how this game is played. And that <laughs> is, uh, you want a statistic that's not too easy so that we all get it all at once. Not too hard that you know forget about it. We, you know, of course, we're all we all come up with the statistics, and each of us try to figure that out through deductive reasoning, questions, and and uh, clues, that kind of thing. Uh, and you want a statistic, if if you can, that's uh, uh, topical, recent, last week or two, topical, which would be the consumer. Okay, that that's the game. All right. Chris, you catch on to that? He changes the rule yeah, every time. Last week or two. <laughs> last week or two? Yeah. It's always been the last <laughs> week. See, this is, he's ill-prepared. He's ill-prepared. No, God, no actually, he's, he's, Ryan, so he's, ba- he's bailing me out because I've been yeah. on vacation most of this week. Oh, okay. And, so, and, and, and I wanted a consumer-related statistic. So the one I have in my hip pocket actually is from... Two weeks, weeks back. Well, so but you're the way guest. too much information. Way too <laughs> yeah, no, much. Information. Yeah, you just gave it away. Yeah, well, baby. I was. <laughs> by the way, I, I thought I should tell that. Credit that, that was has nothing to do with you. <laughs> so you, didn't, you didn't know that, but you are bailing me out. It's <laughs> uh, so funny. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, who wants to go first? Well, let's go. Let's Scott go first. Okay, okay. Scott, Since you go first. We know two weeks yeah. ago. Yep. Two yeah. weeks ago, I have two numbers which are from different releases, but I think should be tied together. Um, it's 8.4% and 13.4%. Consumer related. Consumer related. Is one from for a mortgage balance increase over the last year? No. 
Is one I think it's close to that, though. I think it's close to that. Yeah, no, I think it is. Yeah, it might it be even stronger that's... actually. Thirteen point four would be more like uh, mortgage debt growth, I think. Over the last year. Oh. Uh, okay, I'll bet you. No. I'll bet you on that. Side bet. Side, side bet. bet. Dollar bet. There we go. Write it down. Above ten, below ten percent. Bet year over year mortgage debt outstanding. Yes. Yeah, through the month of June. I bet it's over ten. Anyway, all right. Back to back. <laughs> Back to the main show. Is this is this related to buying plans in the University of Michigan survey? No. Okay. Is it is it it's consumer related? Is it related to jobs in any way? No. Is it re- related to spending, retail spending? Yes. Oh. Okay. Are we Ooh. looking at growth in specific categories of spending? No. Oh. oh. <laughs> that would have been, been too easy. Is this, a, is this a calculation you got to do? Is it like above or below? No. Okay. Both numbers are year over year growth rates. And they both come from, they come from different reports. Yes. Is one, uh, oh, and they're both positive. You said 8.4 and 13.4. And 13.4. Yes. They're both positive. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm not falling gonna... into Marissa's trap. Right, the wow. negative sign because I was going to say like Walmart sales or something, but oh, well, it could be. Is it is it a retailer's sales growth? No. Oh, geez. Yeah. Oh man. Should let me ask you this: Should we? Are we being idiots? Should we know this? <laughs> we have a do the, have a chance. The eight point four. <laughs> I am very surprised you don't know the thirteen point four. Um, is a little more subtle, and I, that one I would yeah. not. That that one's hard. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, it, all right. It, uh, this. This is just a guess. 8.4. Is that just total retail sales year over year? Yes. Right. Oh. oh. <laughs> I think we're overthinking it. No, we were overthinking it. We were overthinking so 13.4 comes from something different. It's not yes. retail sales. It's from a different not report. Oh, yes. okay. Oh, you, you were being a little sheepish because you thought that couldn't be the answer. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Uh and so what's the 13.4? Uh, is that, uh, I'm just, I'm going to, just a corollary, is that service suspending growth? Nope. Well, we wouldn't okay. have that yet, actually. We, yeah. Because I'm looking yeah, at June. Next week. Is it next week? Okay. No. Uh, but it's, it's spending. This... It's another, it's growth in some form of spending. No. Oh, no. it's not. Is this something from Michigan? Oh. No. No. Oh, my uh, a lot of no's coming out of that. <laughs> Jeez Louise. All right. I don't know. What do you guys give up? You want to hear it? Because he said it is subtle. I think he used the word subtle. Yeah. Are, are we yeah. Going, it's, it's not a oh, high profile. It's not a high profile. Are we going from the race? It's not something like, you know, the, I, I don't red know. Book? Re, I was going to say red book. It can't yeah. be red. No, no, no. Cause it's not a spending number. It's not like a visa. Okay. It's a price number. More, huh? a price. It's a price, price number. Everything's up 13.4%. But I tie the two together. Is that retail, the, the uh, inflation for nope. retail goods? We don't have that yet. <sighs> and what can what came out last week? CPI. What did you guys talk CPI. about last week? CPI. Yeah. So what component of the CPI would I be looking at? Re, re, some kind of retail good. Goods, <laughs> goods CPI. Commodities CPI. Oh, okay. All right. Fair enough. All fair right. Enough. That, that's not so, the, but, but, and the point I want to make is that, that spending. <laughs> you have a point? Is, <laughs> I do. You don't have points in this game. Spending no, was up 8.4%. Uh-huh. 
prices for a roughly comparable basket of goods is up 13.4%. What does that say about real spending? Yeah, that's a good point. On goods. Yep, yep. But I got pretty close when I said inflation for retail goods, right? I mean, come on. You're in the ballpark. Oh, that's rude. That's rude. (laughs) But no, that's a great point. Real. So even though retail sales was, I think it was up 1% in the month, nominal. So includes inflation. You're saying real after inflation, it was down negative. Yeah. 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 But and people took solace in the 1%. I mean, markets did because it was stronger than anticipated, but it right. was, yeah. but, but the trend, the trend in real, you now obviously a lot of it is energy. I mean, yeah. if, you do the same, energy. if you do the same thing for core, the gap between the two is less than half a percentage point. Oh, okay. So, okay. That, that's good to know. Yeah. So it, it is, it's food and energy, but it's still taking a bite out of consumers. Yeah budgets because that the point I always make is that you know while economists care about core consumers buy food and energy every week and that's what they care about a lot. So it really matters to consumers. Yeah no that's good that was a good statistic. Okay we better move forward. Uh, Ryan you want to go next? Minus 18.6 minus 18 point came out this week. Not this week. It did come out this week. Is it? it is it? Um, it's not housing related. Uh, well, not. It could be. Everything's down in housing. <laughs> uh, is it from the Philly Fed survey? It is. I knew uh, it. Close to our home. Uh, it, it's one component of the Philly Fed for sure. Because the Philly Fed survey is down like negative twelve or something. Mm-hmm. So it's not. This is that. the low. This is the lowest since nineteen seventy nine. And it's that survey's been done since 1968, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, give or take. Yeah. Yeah. So a long yeah. time. It's a long time. By the way, on the Philly Fed, uh, it used to be when I was a young economist that that was the foolproof leading indicator of recession because it it you know manu- Philly Fed is manufacturing activity in the third district of the Fed system, which is Philly, it's small, but you know, it was a very good leading barometer and you had this long time series. And I think to this day, it's still excellent at, you know, if it, I think it has to fall more than to negative 20 though, for it to be a strong signal. Or the headline. Yep. The headline. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's down 18 is one of the components. Uh, is it orders? It can't be orders. New orders. Yeah. No, Mm-mm. no, it's too much. Uh, I know prices received, prices paid, still got to be high, but they're coming in. Right. Supplier deliveries, they're coming in, but they're still high, I think. Uh, uh, employment, no, can't be employment. Um, I mean- Yes, sir, you're getting really close. You're just uh, dancing around it. Yeah, what else is in that survey that I'm missing? Uh, what are the components? Investment somehow, investment spending, no. Uh, inventories, office space use. No, that's not. Remember the, the general business con- conditions index is yeah. its own question. It's a measure yeah, exactly. Of You're right. So yeah, when you're thinking component, there's something else they ask that's the lowest since 1979, and it gets back to recessions. Expectations. Mm-hmm. It's an expectation. Oh months. yeah, should have known that. Right. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. Expectations. So They're down. Yeah. Like everything, like all these surveys, right? Yeah, it's really bad. I mean, look look at the uh, NAHB. That fell a lot this week. You know, across the board, confidence 
small business confidence, our weekly business confidence survey, everything is just down, down in the dumps. Yeah, but a lot of, I mean, sentiment is de- is down, right? I mean, yeah. th- this is, there's a lot of sentiment built into these kind of surveys, these diffusion indices, don't you think? It's, it's, it's generally, the yeah. question is, are we going up? Are we going down? Are we staying the same, right? Correct, yeah. The, and, specifically the regional Fed manufacturing survey. Yeah. The ISM, you can break out the ISM into like the hard ISM component. Like, so you can, you know, look at the details of the ISM and map it to like the hard manufacturing data and then back out the sentiment component. But yeah, the regional, you know, Philly, New York, Richmond, all these are driven by sentiment. Yeah. I think the Philly Fed, again, was the first survey done, you know, back first mm-hmm. one done. And it really... Uh, when again, when I back 30 years ago, that was like a really key indicator. People really mm-hmm. paid a lot of attention to it, much less so now. All right, we're going to do one more because we're going to move on. Let's go. Chris, what's your statistic for the week? All right. Uh, two for 824,000. I know it. Yeah. Stop. It's what's the uh, second one? Uh, uh, you have to give me the other tell a second. Wait a second. Okay. 824,000 <laughs> is the uh, homes. Single family homes under construction. Okay. Ryan, are you taking this in? Are you taking this in? And then I'm going to tell you what his next question was going to be 868,000. No. No. Okay. What was that movie with Tom Cruise where he could predict the future? You know, the guy who's good. You know, talk, yeah, it was uh, Minority Report. Yeah. That was like Minority Report. They could, they should put like little uh, electrodes on my brain, you know, because I could predict. What and it, you, you could swim in a vat all day. I, could swim in a vat. <laughs> I didn't hear the cowbell, though. It, it, I gave I the cowbell for the, the first one. Thing. I don't know why. I had to get my own cowbell out and, and do it. Yeah. You can get it. Yeah. All right, yeah, I'm sorry. We, we, I, I was just gloating so much. Collusion. I blew by why, what the statistic was and why it matters. Go ahead, Chris. Fire away. Yeah. So these are um, homes under construction, both single family and multifamily. Um, they are still higher than last year. So they're still elevated. So I view this as a positive in the short term. There's a lot, still a lot of homes to be built in the pipeline. right? So over the next few months, that should continue to support housing construction industry. And that, that offsets some of the negative uh, sentiment we've been talking about here. But if you look deeper in the report, right, permits are down and starts are down. So uh, longer term, there's some concern about the, um, the strength of the housing market. And I don't think that's a surprise given what's going on with rates and expectations for pricing. So um, yeah, short term, housing is going to continue to support longer term. It's going to be uh, not a drag, but uh, less of a, a positive uh, for economic activity. Of course, one, one thing that I've wondered about, because yeah. you got a record number of homes under construction, right? and they've been delayed, I guess, presumably because of the supply chain issues around building materials and labor issues yep. related to the pandemic. Both, yeah. And so, as a, and by the way, in the Philly Fed survey, correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, one positive thing was supplier deliveries are improving here very rapidly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it feels like the pressure is coming off the supply chains pretty quite fast. So if that's the case, then you would expect these homes to go to completion. And it, it's really completion that matters most for output GDP and jobs, right? Because you're, right. you're right. working on them. The starts and the permits, that's the future. 
down yep. the road, but these are here and now over the next few months, at least over the next six, nine, 12 months. Do you know, do uh, presumably builders could stop building those homes, right? They could, they could kind of put them in deep freeze and say, I'm just not going to go to completion. Cause I don't know if I can sell it at the price I want it. I think is reasonable on the other side of this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They could do that. They do that uh, with foundations from time to time, right? They pour the foundation and they stop for whatever reason. I, I once the house is under underway, though, they're right? not going to do that. You don't think? You know, if this if if they've already put up the frame yeah. insulation, right? Then it's it's harder to mothball that. But. And they got money tied up, right? They had to. They're financing it in some way. Yeah. So you think they'll complete it no matter? Well, it'd be pretty. It had to be pretty bad for them not to complete it. I think so. As long as they've poured the, if, if they haven't poured the foundation yet, then yeah. they could, or even if they have poured the foundation, they could stop at that point, cover it up and just wait. But is there a date on that? Do we know where in the pipeline those homes are? Can we figure that out? I mean, that'd be good to know. I mean, let me, I think there's some around. private sources. I mean, yeah, uh, there might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be really good around. to know. Because uh, that's really key to the near term here, which is, you know, uh, important. Okay. All right. There's uh, a big risk of that though, right? There's still. Yeah, you're right. In the, Prices in are the still near up. They're yeah. discounting, but you know, they're still, they can make a good return on their investment. I think. Yeah. I think later right. on though, I think you're right. If, yeah. if things soften here, if, if demand falls off and they're in the middle of the permitting process, let's say, then they might pull back from there. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right, we're going to move forward. I'm going to skip mine just because, for sake of time, because uh, we're we're getting close to time here. Um, let's talk about recession odds. Uh, and uh, let me begin with you, Ryan. Can you what, what are your re- uh, probability of recession for the next year, next two years, and has that changed from last week? Hasn't changed. It's still sixty five percent. For both one year ahead mm-hmm. and two year ahead. Here's the thing I want to ask you: um, How in the world could this recession happen? To you know, what if it's going to happen? Is it going to happen? Feels like it's going to happen soon, isn't it? Yeah, next year, mm-hmm. even like next six months, it doesn't feel like. I agree with you. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I mean, if we get through early next year, then we're going to avoid it. But if there's going to be a recession, it's going to be soon. It's going to be right. short, but it just seems like everything's pointing towards a, a, a recession on the, on the horizon. Chris, you don't see the excess something. savings providing some lifeline here and pushing things out. You don't, it hasn't really come down that much though. I mean, the last few months, it, I, th- I would have thought we've got high gas, gasoline prices. You'd see that excess savings be worked down more. No, quickly, but what he's but, saying is that yeah, the that's is a buffer. There. Yeah. It's a buffer. Yeah. No, I, yeah. It's it's like push things off out. Recession. Yeah. It could the point is it could be worked down delaying things if you know if job growth were to stop or something mm-hmm. you, you, consumers could still carry on for a little while and delay you really entering the recession because of the excess savings yeah well that gets back to the argument do they treat it like cash or wealth right so, no it does right. yeah so ryan what, and then scott's what? leverage point right if they mm-hmm. build up the balances today then the, the trouble may yeah. actually yeah reveal they itself are, they are, some, some of it is not cash excess savings, it's that they increase their borrowing and get themselves in mm-hmm. trouble by mid to late next That's year. True. Oh, no, yeah. I think there's plenty of lifelines for the economy. I just think it, that at the end of the day, it's going to come down to inflation and what the Fed does. And they could face Hobson's choice of 
you know, rather do they push us into a recession now or wait longer and have to push us into a deeper recession? And I think if you ask Powell and twist his arm, he would say, I'll take a short recession now to break inflation. I think that's a great point. It's about inflation here and now. And if it doesn't come in, he's going to keep pressing harder and harder on the brakes and then the economy is going to break. But but then right. again, the Fed moves operate with long and variable lags. So how how quickly can he bring us in? Yeah, that's what recession. people say, but it feels like it's working awfully fast. <laughs> yeah, I think that time horizon is shortened. Yeah, the mm-hmm. housing market's caving. I mean, you see, I mean, mm-hmm. demand is caving. Existing home sales, 5.1 million units in June. That's that's all. That's a, it was six and a half, I oh, think, yeah. right? Start of the year. And, mm-hmm. you know, that that's it's falling fast here. Uh, anyway, okay. What one statistic are you focused on when you say 65% probability? I'd like, just give us one statistic you're looking at. I don't want to steal Chris's, but it's jobless claims. Okay. So the trend, not week to week because they're very volatile, but the four-week moving average in initial jobless claims. So they are pretty telling. Yeah, but they're 250. They've moved up to where you'd want them to be, right? If you were the Fed. No, 250 is roughly the average that you see before recessions. Now, that 250 isn't the line in the sand. Uh-huh. Actually, uh, one number I was going to use is 275. That's the break-even level of jobless claims right now, which would be uh, consistent with no monthly job growth. So we got a little bit okay. of a buffer, okay. but if we get up to 270, 275, then yeah. we got a problem. So we go north of 275, no job growth. We're going negative. And that's we're probably, negative. we're going in. Yep. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, uh, Scott, do you have a probability of recession in mind? I, I haven't asked. You've not been on before, so I've not asked. But do you have? A, a, um, a I'm sort of struggling to come up with one. Um, I think I'm probably a little more optimistic than, than Brian is. And I'm struggling. That's not hard. It's not hard to be more optimistic. But I, I struggle with the timing. I'm really struggling whether to put it into the next year or the second year out because I, I think I don't think it can I don't think it's gonna happen this year. I think I do believe the consumer buffer is too much. Um, but I'm not sure if it can happen as soon as the first half of next year. What's so your I probability pro- though? Well, over the over the next year, do you have one or not? It's okay. Well, I'm kind of, I'm kind of I'm, I'm almost talking myself through to try and get to it. I'd say probably a little under half, maybe forty five percent. Okay. In the next okay. year, and then maybe a little over half, maybe fifty five. Yeah. In two years, because I am I am more worried about that sort of twelve to probably eighteen month out horizon. Right. Um, is there one statistic you kind of focus on, look at, trying to gauge recession risks? No, I don't know that yeah. I have a single statistic I'd go say I'd go to at this point. Okay. All right. Chris, where are you? Unchanged from last week, 50% in the next year, 65% chance in, in the next two years. Right. Okay. And, and, and there's only one statistic you need. It's the don't, it's don't, curve. Don't the curve. <laughs> yeah it's the well, 10 how are you not higher it's well, well once the, i'm waiting inverted. for the 10 10 year three month uh yield curve to invert once that goes then i'll i'll up my odds yeah well the, yeah, the okay. difference between the 10 2 was the largest since the early 2000s yeah and it's, it's so narrow on. though it's only 
15, 20 basis points, 0.15, 0.2 percentage points, right? I mean, it's not that big. It's been two weeks now, roughly. I think it's going on three, right? I don't think so. I think it's, I think it's going to be two weeks today, I believe. Inverted, right, I Ryan? Was, I thought it was around the. I'm just reading July. Ryan's. <laughs> no, it's, it's Ryan. roughly two weeks. Yeah. Work every day. He sends mm-hmm. out a really cool missive every day. It's better than a missive. It's a. You can say it's a missive. It can be a missive. Okay, it's a missive, and he at the end he does talk about the ten-year, two-year spread. And he says four, 13 trading days. I think today you're going to write fourteen. Oh, trading days. All right, fourteen trading, trading days. days. Yeah. yeah. Oh, All sorry. Right. Yeah, I was putting it in the weekend. But that is about three weeks, right? <laughs> yeah, because you have five trading days yeah. a week. Yeah. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah, you're right. Exactly. <laughs> I was thinking two weeks. Yeah, right. It is almost three three weeks on trading days. Yeah, you're right. Sorry, sorry, Chris. Okay. Um, it's okay. Uh, what was what are you, oh, where are you at? This is the big reveal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I had been at 40% one year uh, recession odds and 55% two year recession odds. And I'm now going up to 45% one year. 55, two years. So I'm exactly with, yeah, Scott, with Scott, I think. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm looking at the 10-year, two-year, and that's why my recession odds have gone up. Uh, if, if that doesn't write itself here in the next week or two, then uh, you know, I'm, I'd have to go up to at least 50%. Uh, and I do agree the 10-year, three-month would be real ratification of what the 10, two-year is saying. Uh, I do look at the UI claims. Uh, yeah. and I, you know, I, I thought 275 to 300 would be, you know, problematic. I mentioned the Philly Fed down 20. I think that would be an issue. The conference board survey down 20 points over a three month period. That would be, you know, quite bothersome. We're awfully close, you know, to uh, going recession, but that's kind of sort of where we've been, right? That we're going to get right on the precipice and pull back before we actually fall over. But and while while you're on the precipice, it feels pretty uncomfortable, like you are going to fall over. But that's completely understandable. That's what you would expect. So this is to script so far. I will say I agree with you, Chris, that if anything else goes wrong, we're done. And the probability that something can go wrong here is not inconsequential. Uh, so you know, risks are awfully high. Uh, so I, I agree with you. But the consumer is the firewall. Got to hang tough, and you're wrong about debt. That's all I got to say on that issue, uh, at least so far. Uh, any any other pearls of wisdom before we move on? Before we call it a podcast? No. Okay. Uh, we're going to call it a podcast, and uh, th- uh, this was a long one. Uh, uh, come back next week. We've got uh, P- Princeton Professor Alan Blinder. That should be a good conversation. But uh, thank you. Uh, have a good weekend. Uh, talk to you soon. Take care now. <laughs>